You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. Today is October 10th, and this is episode 140 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll be listening to a conversation about Cape Otway Lighthouse in Australia. Making her first appearance as my co-host today is Sarah McHugh, who has a background in sports management and is currently doing volunteer work for the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here. So, Sarah, uh, you contacted me about helping lighthouses as a volunteer, maybe a couple of months ago. What uh, prompted you to contact me? So I've always been super excited about lighthouses. I love their symbolism um, and I got super attached to them, especially during uh, the quarantine during COVID and I started listening to the podcast. And I was prompted by one of the podcasts to reach out if I was interested in volunteering or getting more involved. And that's exactly what I did. So if there's anyone out there like me, I encourage you to reach out to Jeremy and get involved. There's a ton of exciting events and things going on that you can get involved in. There's always plenty to get involved with, for sure, uh, and we can never have enough volunteers, or we can never have too many volunteers, that's for sure. And uh, I'll remind people they can contact me by emailing me at jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, at uslhs.org. And I'm always happy to correspond with people about volunteer opportunities or any ideas they might have about the podcast. Uh, Sarah, you just told me about your Instagram account, and uh, I thought that was really cool. I was just looking at it a while ago. Can you tell our listeners about that? Sure. My Instagram account is actually me and my dog, Coda, and we've set out to see as many New England lighthouses as possible. Um, so we take photos, we do some research and visit local spots, and we report back on all the highlights. Uh, so we're, we're expanding actually out of New England as our next big trip, and it's to the New Jersey Lighthouse Challenge, which is in October. So we welcome you to follow along with us on our lighthouse adventures. The Instagram tag is at Coda with a K, the keeper. Yeah, and uh, Coda's really cute. Uh, he's a, <laughs> Thank you. What, what kind of what kind of dog is he? He is a small lab mix, so he's only about uh-huh. fifty pounds. I thought he looked part black lab, but not not entirely, like something else too. Yeah. Yeah, he's a black lab and something else. Not sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like the pictures at Nopska light that you have on there on Cape Cod. Well, it's great to have you on board the podcast. So thank you for for being part of this. As I mentioned, today is October 10th, and this is episode 140 of Lighthearted. Sarah, has anything interesting happened on this date in lighthouse history? Yes, actually. On October 10th, 1835, the light station in Marblehead, Massachusetts went into service. The light's first keeper, Ezekiel Darling, had been the chief gunner on board the USS Constitution, the warship that's also known as Old Ironsides. Darling remained keeper for 25 years. Yeah, I grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, right next to Marblehead. And when I was growing up, if somebody was a little slow to catch on to something, uh, somebody would say, Dawn breaks on Marblehead. Uh, I grew up here. <laughs> so the, uh, the Marblehead Lighthouse in Massachusetts, not to be confused with Marblehead Lighthouse in Ohio, uh, the original small stone tower there was replaced in 1896 by a tall cast iron skeletal tower. Some people think it's ugly. Uh, my wife hates it and it makes her angry, <laughs> but I kind of like it because it's the only lighthouse of its type in New England and it's got its own charm, I think. So Sarah, please help me tell our listeners about Cape Otway Lighthouse and today's guest, Alex Parry. Sure, Jeremy. Cape Otway is in southern Victoria, Australia, about 50 miles southwest of Melbourne. Cape Otway Lighthouse is nicknamed the Beacon of Hope. For thousands of immigrants in the 1800s, Cape Otway was the first site of land after leaving Europe, Asia, and North America. It's the oldest surviving lighthouse on the Australian mainland, and it's also considered the most significant. Built in 1848, the lighthouse stands on a high cliff at the western entrance to Bass Strait between Australia and Tasmania. Frequent shipwrecks in the area with hundreds of lives lost led to the establishment of the lighthouse. Stone was cut at the Parker River about three miles to the east and was brought to the construction site by oxen. Seventy men worked for ten months to build the sandstone tower. The light began service in 1848. In 1891, the original system of 21 whale oil lamps and parabolic reflectors was replaced by a first-order Fresnel lens manufactured by Chance Brothers in England. 
The light was replaced by a small automated beacon in 1994. Today, overnight accommodations are available in two double studios and in the head keeper's cottage. The light station has been open to the public in the past, but currently the only way to get a close look is by registering in advance for a tour. Alex Parry is the operations coordinator for Cape Otway Light Station, and I had the pleasure of speaking with him recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Alex Parry, who is the uh, operations coordinator at the Cape Otway Lighthouse in uh, Victoria, Australia, which I believe is the, uh, the oldest lighthouse on the Australian mainland. Do I have that right, Alex? You do. You do. It is the oldest surviving one on the mainland. It's the second one uh, built on the mainland. And uh, Alex, uh, you're, of course, in Australia. I'm here on the New Hampshire seacoast, and uh, we were just chatting about this a little bit. I always feel like I'm speaking into a time machine when I'm speaking to, to people in your part of the world because it's 7 p.m. here. It's, what is it, 9 o'clock uh, uh, tomorrow morning, Friday. It's 7 o'clock Thursday evening here. Uh, nine o'clock uh, Friday morning, your time. I, I think it is anyway, right? That, that, that's quite that's quite right, Jeremy. I wish I could give you the lottery numbers. Right, right. That's a good good point. I, geez, I didn't think of that, but I'm sorry it doesn't doesn't quite work that way. You uh, mentioned that you're uh, not speaking to me from your home or from the lighthouse. You're actually in an office, your office as a fire captain or what we might call a fire chief here. Is that a volunteer uh, position? It is, Jeremy. I mean, uh, outside the major Australian cities, uh, fire service in Australia is provided by a, a volunteer system. Uh, so I'm, I'm captain of the Operate Brigade. Uh, we've got about 39 members and we're just starting to gear up for the forthcoming uh, bushfire season mm -hmm. here. Uh, hopefully we'll have a quiet season, but we can never tell. And we also respond to structure fires, vehicle accidents. Uh, that sort of incident. One other thing I, I want to mention before we uh, really get into talking about the lighthouse and so forth. Um, I watched a video of you. I was just telling you online, and I thought your I thought your accent was maybe a little bit different from the average Australian accent. I'm, I'm not a native-born Australian, Jeremy. Uh, I was I was born in the UK. I'm actually my heritage is Welsh Jamaican. I I married an Australian 16 years ago. Best thing ever did, apparently, so she tells me. Uh, <laughs> we lived in Wales, so we could, mm -hmm. it was easier to work and travel. But we were always going to retire here. And I retired seven years ago, and we, we moved to the Otways. The Otways mm -hmm. is very similar to Wales, I think. It's, it's the ocean. It, it's rolling green hills, sheep, mm -hmm. wind, and rain. It's just a little bit warmer with uh, koalas and kangaroos. <laughs> yeah, that does make it a, a wee bit different. Well, that's great. That's great. Uh, so what actually led to your position there as operations coordinator for Cape Otway Lighthouse? How did that happen? It's either chance or, or fate. Um, my degree many, many years ago was in history and British Imperial history. And I saw an advert actually for a, a cafe staff at Cape Otway Light Station because we're also a tourist attraction. And uh, I put my CV in. They read it and said, oh, we don't think you'll be quite suited to cafe staff. Uh, how about being a guide? So I, I started off as a guide. And within about six months, I became the operations coordinator at the station. And what does that mean exactly? What does an operations coordinator do? A little bit of everything. That would be the <laughs> yeah. best uh, description. Uh, so uh, we're our, we are an operational light station. We still have um, a light beacon on site. We're also uh, an official weather station. So we've got automated weather station equipment there. We're a heritage site with a number of heritage buildings. We're also uh, have accommodation. So it, it's, it's juggling the day-to-day -day operation of those. So one minute I could be researching uh, the lives of lighthouse keepers and their families in the 19th century. The next minute, I'm making sure we've got enough toilet rolls in place for the, the 150,000 year visitors that we normally get. That's a lot of rolls. <laughs> that is a lot of rolls. I think some get souvenired. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. That seems to be a, a valuable commodity these days, too, we, at least in this country. It was the same yeah. here. Worth their weight in gold. Yeah, I guess. So before we talk more about the lighthouse, 
Tell me about the Great Ocean Road. What is the Great Ocean Road? What's so special about it? I think there's a number of uh, special qualities about the Great Ocean Road. It's about 250 kilometers. So if you can convert that, that's something like, like 150 miles stretching along the Victorian coastline. I think it, it, the best way to describe it visually, it's a little bit like the Pacific Highway in California. Mm-hmm. Well, what's really special about it, it was, it was constructed between uh, 1919 and, and 1932, and it was constructed by um, returning soldiers from the First World War as a, a job creation scheme. So it's been described as the world's largest war memorial to the fallen soldiers of the First World War. It, it's a spectacular drive. So there was a, uh, a terrible shipwreck and Bass Strait in 1845. Can you tell me about that wreck, and does it have anything to do with uh, the light being established? I think you're referring to the Kataraki wreck, or Kataraki, depend on, on your pronunciation of it. That was a ship carrying uh, three emigrants from uh, England to Victoria, and there were just over 400 persons on board. So they set sail from Liverpool in the UK, and they've been travelling for about three months. They arrive off the coast of Australia, and unfortunately, because of poor weather conditions, uh, the captain couldn't take his navigation sights accurately. So he, he thought he was um, off Cape Otway, which at that time didn't have a lighthouse. Uh, unfortunately, he was directly off King Island, and the ship was wrecked on King Island, and 400 persons lost their lives, unfortunately. And it was Australia's largest peacetime maritime disaster. It's always given as a reason why the lighthouse was built at Cape Otway, as that landfall welcomed Australia light. But they were actually discussing it prior to that shipwreck. In fact, the news came through of that shipwreck as they were holding the meeting. You also have to go back about 10 years to 1835, when the convict ship, the Neva, got wrecked off King Island as well. And in that shipwreck, over 200 persons drowned, and they were mostly women and children. So the Admiralty had had said that no ship should travel through Bass Strait at night. At that meeting in 1845, when they had already decided that they were going to build lighthouses, navigation along the Bass Strait. They were going to build six, but Cape Artway was going to be the first one. And so construction started a year later in 1846. So yes, you know, the, the cataraki did play a very important part because of public opinion, mm-hmm. um, but they had already met and decided in a way that they were going to have to do something to safeguard yeah. shipping. Sure, that makes sense. And uh, imagine it was a pretty formidable uh, project to, to build the lighthouse. Cape Otway, it's you, when you even today when you reach here, you get that that isolated feel of how remote it is. Mm-hmm. We're about in modern days, we're about a three-hour drive from Melbourne, the state capital. In in those days, there was no European settlement in the region. Certainly, the First Nations, uh, the uh, indigenous population was there, but no Europeans. It took three attempts to reach the site when Latrobe, who was the uh, superintendent of the district, when he finally arrived after making three attempts, he only surveyed it for an hour and then left. Then construction went out for tender, the lowest tender one, a contractor who's, who really didn't understand how difficult the build was going to be, but he was the lowest bid. Right. So his men and supplies uh, are shipped in from Melbourne about a day sail away. They land six k's away, which was the safest place they could land at Parker River. When they land at Parker River, they just discover by happenstance good quality enough green sandstone they can use in the construction. So they start a, a quarry there. Then um, once stones are cut at a quarry, by bullock dray, six k's along a rough, rough track to Cape Otway. Initially, they want to build it where Latrobe had suggested the site, but they realise it's too sandy there. So they have to move construction back about 20 metres away where we see the modern day uh, lighthouse. They dig out the foundations. Then the government inspector comes along and condemns them. 
they're unfit. By which stage McGilvery, the contractor, his men, they're getting a little bit fed up. They're living in rough shelters, the food's not great. Uh, they take a, a writ out against McGilvery. He gets sacked. The government of the day take over the build and construction takes just under two years. Majority undertaken in 10 months, but it comes in way over budget. So I mentioned before they set aside 9,000 pounds to build six lighthouses. McGilvery's quote was 1,900 pounds to build Cape Otway. It came in at 4,300 pounds, half the budget spent on building one lighthouse. Mm-hmm. The actual design of the lighthouse, it, it follows that traditional British method of, of either called the Ashlar method or the, the Smeaton method after John Smeaton, uh, the design of the third Edison lighthouse in Plymouth back in the UK. It's that classic interlocking block work. Dovetailed. Yeah, dovetailed in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we find in Australian lighthouse generally, apart from the prefabricated lighthouses, is that they tend to use whatever stone is to hand locally, and then everything else is imported. So our original um, lantern room and 21 lamps for the lantern was imported from, from Britain, from England. So as you just said, there were originally 21 whale oil lamps, uh, the original apparatus backed with parabolic reflectors, similar to the systems that were used in this country before they adopted Fresnel lenses. When did a Fresnel lens first get installed at Cape Otway and what's, what's there today? Yeah, you're quite right. So originally we have the, the, the apparatus of 21 original oil lamps, the Argand lamp. We could have the Fresnel lens because obviously they had been invented by 1848. We didn't have them here. We didn't have ours until 1891. So that was one of the major upgrades of the lighthouse. So the tower's the original tower. The current lantern room and the Fresnel lens was manufactured back in Chance Brothers, the major manufacturers of, of, of lenses and lanterns for the British Empire and beyond. Right. That was manufactured back in 1888. It shipped across in kit form. The, the lens actually went to Melbourne first for the Centennial Exhibition in Melbourne. It won a gold medal. Uh-huh. Then they created it all back up, put it on the ship. Uh, landed at a blanket bay, six k's away from the lighthouse, as all our supplies are landed. And then again, on that bullet dray, six k's, back to the lighthouse and reconstructed on site. So in, in 1891, what they did, they built a, a temporary wooden tower alongside our stone tower. They slid the original uh, Wilkins lantern room and those 21 lamps across onto that temporary structure. So we were still showing the light at night. Then in about eight weeks, in kit form, they built up the new lantern lens. So in our, in our tower light, we still have the original lens. Inside the Fresnel lens, we have two 1,000-watt um, globes, one operational, the other standby. However, in terms of modern-day navigation, the tower light was decommissioned in 1994, even though it does still work. But... For navigation today, what we use at the base of the tower, there's a very small automated light beacon um, with 35 watt globes. Okay. Fully automated, solar powered. Thank you for clarifying that. So the Fresnel lens is first order. Is that, is that correct? It is first order, yes. Yep. It must be mag- magnificent. It, it is. It is. And one of my, my duties as, as the operations coordinator is getting to clean a lens. And as you're cleaning it, you do get that sense of history that, that you'll carry on the same functions that the keepers have carried out at Cape Artway since 1891. And it is a privilege. Yeah. And then, you know, for the public, we try and light the lens once a year. To see it lit at night, to see the power of the light across the ocean and inside the lantern room, the light of the lens reflecting the lantern room. It, it is magical. I'll bet it is. Is there a certain date each year that it's lit? Does that happen on a certain date? Not a certain date. Uh, the la- Coincidentally, the last time we did it was back in May, which coincides with my birthday. <laughs> oh. <laughs> For your birthday? Is that why you lit it up that day? Yeah. I do get to pick the date, and it just happened to be the most convenient one. Okay. So in the past, we, we, we have lit it for special occasions, 
such as the 170th anniversary of, of Cape Otway, of the light station, for example. We've also lit it when we had a very long serving guide retired. But in general, if I can find an excuse for it to go back on, it will go back on. I have to put a report in to answer the, the Australian Maritime uh, Safety Authority because um, obviously our the tower light has a different range than the modern day beacon. It's mm -hmm. more powerful than modern day beacon and it has a, a different flash characteristic as well. And the tower light no longer appears on the charts. Mm -hmm. So uh, put a report in, I'll be authorised, but then a notice have to go, has to go out to mariners that the, the tower light will be, will be back on. When I throw the switch, I always do cross my fingers, though, that the, the Falsmock globe will spark up. I must admit that. Yeah. You know, I get to clean the fourth order for an lens at my local lighthouse here, Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. That feels like a, a real privilege. And the other, when other volunteers help me do that, they feel it's, it's really a special thing. But wow, a first to clean a Chance Brothers first order lens. Do you do it all by yourself or do you get help helping that? I tend to do it all by myself. They say that replacement value of the lens is around $6 million. So you don't so wear a diamond ring while you're doing that, eh? No. <laughs> no. Heard stories no, about I, such things. Yeah. That, that's, that's right. And yes, I'm, I'm always very wary. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a tremendous responsibility, as, as you know, uh, with, with your lens. But a, a tremendous privilege as well. Yes. Oh, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the human history of the place. Did the station have, I'm sure it had obviously a, a principal keeper. Did it have uh, one or more assistant keepers? It, it did. It did, Jeremy. I mean, depending on the era. So for, for most of its working life, you had one head keeper and two assistant keepers. When our telegraph station at Cape Otway closed, they also had a fourth keeper for signaling duties to share the load. By the uh, Second World War, they'd gone back to three keepers. Due to progress by the 1970s, it had been reduced to a two-keeper watch. By the mid-80s, that had been reduced to one keeper. And today, we have no keepers. There, there have been no traditional lighthouse keepers in Australia, really, since, what, 1996. Matt Syker Island, Tasmania, was the last one. You do see staff at some lighthouses, such as Point Lonsdale, which is another lighthouse in Victoria, but that's mainly surveillance of the shipping channel. No one actually yeah. has to physically look after the lights anymore. Right. I always say to visitors, unfortunately, you know, if you go to an Australian lighthouse today, the person there says, you know, hello, I'm the lighthouse keeper. Well, not really. We're, we're maintenance personnel, we're guides and caretakers. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Very similar we situation here. And I, I'm a little bit of a purist as far as using the word keeper. Yeah. But but, uh, you know, a person like you is a 21st century keeper in so many ways. So that's right. Or, or custodian or guardian or something like that. modern modern day keeper is probably a good good term to use, too, because you, you certainly are that. So I understand the first keeper at Cape Otway was there for 30 years. You're probably referring to uh, Henry Bell's Ford. He was there from uh, look, the, December 1848 to uh, 1878. So, yes, 30 years. He was, in fact, the second headkeeper there. Oh, okay. So the, the, the first headkeeper or, or superintendent, as we're called then, was um, a, a Royal Navy lieutenant called uh, James Lawrence. He got sacked. He may have embellished his, his CV to get the post. At that time, we had two assistant keepers as well. He was very abusive towards them and... Also, he couldn't stop fiddling with the, the 21 oil amps. Although he, he was given strict instructions of what to do, uh, I think he decided he knew a little bit better and, and tried to improve them, shall we say. Okay. So he, he was sacked. Henry Bells took over. He was there for 30 years with his wife, Mary. Coincidentally, his wife, Mary, she had been the housekeeper for uh, Charles de Trobe, who he became a lieutenant governor, the first governor of Victoria. At that time in 1848, he was the head of, the, of, of Victoria, of the district. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was a case of 
who you knew in terms of, of his appointment as the next head keeper at Cape Parkway. Yeah. He certainly had the right background. He'd be an officer mm-hmm. in the Merchant Navy. He'd also worked in the fledgling uh, Victorian Customs Service. He was probably the right person to take on that role, you know, that, that challenging role, the first lighthouse in Victoria in an isolated position, remote community. He's got that discipline. Unfortunately, in, he lacked what we probably call today person management skills, <laughs> so I would okay. say. So you've got, you got three, three families there who do not always get along, and a lot of it is down to his relationship with his assistant keepers. So a number of assistant keepers would, would desert their post and have to be replaced, hmm. particularly during the gold rush era here in Victoria in the 1850s, when there are better prospects on the gold fields. Uh, an example of his relationship with his assistant keepers, they're trying to be as self-sufficient as possible living in a remote community. They have a large vegetable garden, they have an orchard, they have livestock. Staples like rice, flour, sugar, salt, preserved meats, coffee, tea, alcohol, tobacco, supplied for you and then rationed and supplied once a year. So one of the assistant keepers, Morwick, he decides to build a chicken coop out of, in effect, discarded build material. So Morwick builds the coop. Balesford allows him to build it and then as soon as he's finished building it, he tells him to take it down as it's an, an unauthorized structure. Hmm. Warwick refuses. And this battle between the two goes all the way back to their boss in Melbourne. And the reply comes back, yeah, take it down. It's simply not authorized. And Warwick and his family left soon after. So that, that gives a little bit of flavor of, uh, of the man. I mean, he's a great pioneer, along with Mary. But like with any person, there's a different size to the character. Sure. And, and we do have descendants of, of the Fords um, as visitors to the light station. And in fact, we have a very good relationship with them. And they have, in the last year, donated a number of, of Ford artifacts to the light station, which are, which are now on display to the general public. But mm-hmm. initially when they have this impression of, of, of who their, their ancestors were, you, you, you have to sort of broach the subject that maybe there's a different side of the person. But they were quite happy with that because they got that rounded figure, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, he wasn't a, a saint, he was a person. Exactly. What I say as well is if you, if you look at the structure of a, a lighthouse, as impressive as they are, and they are impressive, we should never get that, that back that human dimension to them, those families living at the station, and certainly in the 19th century, well, even into the 20th century, uh, the hardships they faced uh, to keep the light going. Oh, sure. And I imagine it was, it's still somewhat isolated, but in those days, wow, it had to be incredibly isolated. Did the, how often did they even see other people? The supply ship would land supplies uh, once a year. Towards the end of the 19th century, it's twice a year. They have uh, an annual inspection out from, from the government to make sure that, that uh, the light was working, the stores were correct. As more settlement came into the area, we then became a, a focal point for, for the isolated settlements. Mm-hmm. For example, if you were on a homestead and you'd suffered an injury, then you might have made your way to the light station for, for medical support or as people started to explore the Otway Ranges, you might get lost explorers and, light tra- and lost travellers um, making their way to the light station as well. Because from 1859 onwards, we also had the telegraph station there. Mm-hmm. So people would follow the, the telegraph line through, through the mountains, through the Otway Ranges to, in effect, civilization. We did have visitors, but it was a... It was a tremendous excuse when we had visitors to show them um, hospitality uh, and, and really make a real fuss of their visit because it was a highlight to them. There's one story uh, during the Ford's reign where um, the Ford's children uh, meet up with a, a stranger walking the ranges and the Ford's children had all been, always been taught that if they find people uh, in the Otway ranges to invite them to the light station to show them hospitality. Uh, this person was a bit reluctant 
to go to light station. In the end, he did. He spent the night there, had a, had a good meal. The following morning, uh, Mary Ford was wrapping up some provisions for this, this person. On, on seeing the blue paper, the mail traveller took fright and, and ran out back again into the Otway Ranges, into the mountains. The, the story is that the person was a wanted murderer and had mistaken the blue paper for an arrest warrant. So were there uh, Native people, First Nation people around there at the time? In the early days? There certainly were. But in the early days, there certainly were the, the Gadabunut people who have been there for, for you know, thousands of years. We still have Indigenous people in the area. And for them, uh, what happened can be still raw in terms of what we would, we would probably call the frontier wars. And, and certainly there was a, a notable massacre in the area back in 1845, 1846. It's something that we, we want to tell more about, but in respect to the Indigenous people, um, it, it's their story to tell. What I normally say is what happened at Cape Otway in the region was no different than ha- what was happening in other parts of Australia at that time. And to their credit, in a way, the local papers were horrified at what had happened to Cape Otway or in the Cape Otway area in terms of this massacre. Cape Otway, being that first landfall light, mm-hmm. had tremendous strategic importance, both for the state of Victoria and for Australia as a whole, and for the British Empire. And, and that might sort of give you some idea of what happened here. It's a terrible tale, and I, I hope we'll be able to, to share more of it in the future. Right. Back to the general life of uh, keepers and families there, uh, was there, did they have a school at the light station? Not until 1881. So from 1848 to 1881, they were homeschooled in effect, with, with no teacher. Then in 1881, the families petitioned the state government because the nearest settlement was, uh, what, 16 miles away through the Otway Ranges, through the, through the forest and the mountains. So in 1881, uh, a state school was set up at Cape Otway, the light station. But in effect, the, the state supplied the teacher and the school was any part of the building they could use. So for the most part, it was a room at the the telegraph station. The state teacher would be at the light station for a year and lodging with the keeper's families. We we tended to have both both male and female teachers, like I said, on a a one-year placement. That lasted until the 1930s. And then, again, we had the school at Cape Otway in the 1960s, uh, simply because one assistant keeper had 10 children. Wow. In terms of, of children at the light station, they tend to be maybe 16 at a time, yeah. generally. Mm-hmm. And with the teachers having to lodge with the keepers, there was no escape, not really. They, they, they're with the children day in, day out, day, day and yeah. night. To the extent that some teachers preferred to use the the abandoned assistant keepers' quarters from 1850, in effect, one room, mm. you know, one one room, no kitchen, no bathroom, but pre- preferable, a little more privacy, maybe in a way. Yeah, that, that's right. And in the 19 in 1916, there's a tremendous account going back to Fresnel Lens of um, a teacher going up to the to the lantern at night. And, and, and marking the homework by the light of the, the Fresnel lens at night. Oh, wow. Mm. Oh, that's neat. What a, what a neat uh, picture that is to think about that. Mm. You mentioned the supply ship. Do you call it a tender there, as we do here? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. The tender supply ship would bring supplies once a year, you mentioned. Is that what you said? Once a year for major supply Sorry, once a year until the 1870s, until, well, maybe the 1870s, but it starts to become mm-hmm. uh, twice a year. Certainly by the end of the 19th century, it's twice a year. So the supply ship would come out from Melbourne. 1870s onwards, we start using a place called Blanket Bay, which is about 6Ks from uh, the light, light station. So the, the tender boat would, would be offshore. 
supplies were transferred to the ship's rowboat, in effect, a six or smaller tender rowboat. That would then go through the surf, trying to avoid the reefs. Then at Blanket Bay, they constructed a, a jetty. So that the, the smaller tender would tie up at the jetty, supplies transferred to a, a narrow railway along the jetty to the beach, then collected by bullet drape and, and brought back to the light station. In terms of getting your, your annual supplies back, you're making about 23 return trips because it, it's not just your supplies, it's everything else you need to run a, a light station. Blanket Bay was preferable to the early landing site of Parker River, which I mentioned, because the Parker River, once you get on the beach, you have face of a very steep cliff. So they built a, a, a wooden tramway up the cliff and then you collected your supplies by bullock dray. Blanket Bay was easier for the families, but harder for the supply crew in terms of battling your way through the surf. So there, there were a couple of near misses. And then we had the Blanket Bay tragedy of 1896 where that, that smaller tender rowboat capsized, um, three sailors drowned, unfortunately. You mentioned the telegraph station. Uh, what was that all about? So the telegraph station was uh, constructed in 1859. It was really built to facilitate a submarine uh, telegraph cable running from uh, mainland Victoria to uh, Tasmania. Tasmania is a about 160 kilometers away from, from the Victorian mainland. So from Cape Otway, 90 k's away, there's King Island. So the cable ran under Bass Strait to King Island, then over King Island, and then under again to mainland Tasmania. It was, it was the internet of its day, Telegraph, uh, as I'm sure you well know. It just revolutionized communication. Unfortunately, it was the early days of submarine cable manufacture. This was in 1859. So the, the previous year, you had that North American attempt at linking up uh, North America with, with, with Britain. The, the cable is defective and it gets cut by the, the, the rocks and the reefs off King Island. So it only lasts about two months and then intermittently for two years. So after two years, they stop using the cable. But because K-Pop Way is that landfall light for shipping coming from Europe, North America, and Asia out of the Southern Ocean. As a signal station, it still has that tremendous strategic importance of relaying messages from shipping to Melbourne. By telegraph to Melbourne would take four minutes. You try and do it by dispatch rider, you're talking about four days. So we had the telegraph station there operating as a telegraph station from 1859 to around about 1902, then it becomes the quarters for the fourth keeper. Then in the Second World War, it becomes a, a war signal station, and the Royal Australian Navy use it as a, a signal station to keep surveillance in the shipping lane, a bass okay. strait. Then again in the 1960s, it becomes a keeper's accommodation. That Pop building is still, still there, is it? Still there, still there. It, it was last used in about 1988 by the light station. Uh, it was in some disrepair, and then in the early 2000s, it was restored using a, a government grant and personal donations. I think with the telegraph station, it's interesting because certainly in the 19th century, telegraph, telegraph was seen as being a, a white-collar, middle-class, office-based uh, profession compared to being a keeper, where it's seen more as skilled work but blue-collar work, different paying conditions answering to different masters. So what you see, and this refers back to Bell's Ford, what you see is at times a clash of egos. Who is actually in charge of the station? Is it the telegraph manager, who is this white collar, middle-class employee of the state, mm. or is it the lighthouse keeper? Mm. And, and depending on that personal relationship, you, you, you certainly see, particularly with the, the second telegraph manager there, council, this ongoing battle between the two. That's interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah. I guess if they became friends and there's no issue, but um, I guess that mm. wasn't always the case. In effect, they're two, they are two separate operations. For the most part, they work in harmony. One of the occasions when you can say they did work in harmony, when they, when they write a, a joint letter of complaint 
about the, the, the state of the, the provisions provided. Uh. So the, the preserved meat's unfit for human consumption, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always say that, that the head keeper's probably in charge because a head keeper was in charge of rations. That gives them some you know, some leverage, yeah. I think you know, there's tales of, of the, the telegraph operators being shortchanged their sugar ration, for example. Whether that's true or not, I, I don't know. <laughs> but you know, it, it's a good story. Yeah. Well, there's material here for uh, maybe a, a novel or two or a movie or two, for, for sure. I was reading something about the first car reaching Cape Otway. Uh, was it like 1932? Do I remember that right? Which is pretty pretty late in the game for a car to get there for the first time. Nothing wrong with your memory, Jeremy. Yes, you're right. Yeah. It was 1932. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are a number of photographs of its, its arrival at the Cape. And, and it hadn't travelled along a gravel road. It had travelled over the sand dunes. Wow. So driven by the locals, who, who are still a local family in the area. And they got stuck a number of times, um, but they were t- determined to reach the light station uh, with a little bit of help at times, being pushed out of the sand dunes and, and managed to arrive there, like you said, in 1932. Yeah. Let's get back to shipwrecks for a, for a minute or two here. I understand there were at least a couple of uh, significant wrecks of American ships near Cape Otway. So in terms of shipwrecks on Victorian coastline, maybe about 300. Yeah, either side the lighthouse, 10 miles in either direction, definitely 36 shipwrecks. Last one in the 1950s, uh, but we have had uh, fishing boats lost, unfortunately, loss of life off the light station into the 1990s. In terms of American shipwrecks, with the two most significant that spring to my mind, one was the wreck of the Eric the Red in 1880. Eric the Red was the name of the ship? Eric the Red. As yeah, in okay. Eric the Red, the Viking, in 1880. And the second wreck was the city of Rayville in November 1940. Two very interesting shipwrecks. So the Eric the Red, that was, uh, like I said, an American ship. It had been built in Bath in Maine. Mm-hmm. It had a very good reputation as a ship for its seaworthiness and sailing capability. It was specially chosen to take exhibits to the Melbourne Exhibition of 1880 to showcase United States manufacturing capability and also general cargo from Melbourne and Sydney. They set sail for New York. 85 days later, they reached Cape Otway at night. The captain saw the lights of the lighthouse. So he saw the 21 oil lamps going round. He knew exactly where he was. Welcome to Australia. This is Cape Otway. He's just too close. Just off the lighthouse, we do have a reef. He hit the reef three times. The ship sank in 12 minutes, and three sailors and one passenger drowned out of a list of about 24 people on board. The keepers were on duty. They did not see or hear anything unusual that night. The first we knew about it was following morning, when the telegraph station manager woke up, stepped outside the telegraph station, to find all this wreckage strewn along the coastline. Part of that general cargo was about 15,000 cases of kerosene in tins. The tins start to wash up on the beach as well. They start to rupture, and they're this overpowering stench of kerosene along the coastline as well. We, we didn't have any history of wrecking as we would know it, but what we also had was a lot of looting. So once once a ship had been wrecked, it was a free-for-all for the locals until the authorities can come and secure the wreckage for insurance purposes. So in Apollo Bay, you know, they were using every scrap they could to build houses. But the children would all suddenly have the same toy, for example. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that sort of thing was going on. As a result of the wreck of the Eric the Red, we put a red light at the base of the tower, lit separate night. Mm. The red light at Cape Otway was our danger light. The reefs in the region go about 4Ks out. The red light, you would see about 6Ks out. So obviously, you saw the red light, you're too close, move out to open water and navigate using the white light again. So we, we have um, a number of artifacts from the red at the light station for public viewing. The second wreck I mentioned was the American ship, the city of Rayville. That's quite interesting because that hit the German mine in early November 1940. 
because the Germans had mined the Bass Strait uh, in late October 1940 okay. because it was that major shipping channel. We should have expected it because they did exactly the same in the First World War. So the city of Ravel was carrying a, a cargo from Adelaide to New York. It hit a mine in the early evening in November. The mm. lighthouse keeper was on duty, saw the flash, heard the explosion and later saw the crew in the lifeboats. The head keeper then phoned Apollo Bay, the nearest settlement to the light station, to raise the alarm. The fishing fleet from Apollo Bay came out and rescued the crew. November 1940, America's neutral. So it's in all the papers what these terrible Germans had done as a propaganda tool to try and bring the United States into the war. And there's a, there's a couple of famous pictures of the crew outside one of the local hotels in Apollo Bay. Interesting. So let's let's jump up to the present day. Anybody who follows Lighthouse News in the world has probably seen articles within the past year, I believe, uh, articles about the uh, the possibility of the light station closing, maybe permanently closing. I'm not sure what the latest is on that. Uh, can you give a little background? Why has that been discussed and what is the latest on that? Yeah, certainly. Back in 1994, the, the main light station reverted back to state control from federal control. Mm -hmm. uh, the state government shrugged their shoulders and said, well, what, what are we going to do with it? Um, and then a number of local families got together, approached the state government and said, look, we'll run it for you. Because if, if no one takes over management of it, this place is going to turn into ruin. So that relationship carried on until uh, about four years ago now. About four years ago, the state government wanted, quite rightly, to get the local indigenous communities more involved in, in the running of attractions or businesses along the Great Ocean Road. An agreement had been reached with the, the local indigenous community to maintain that relationship, but unfortunately, COVID struck. So pre-COVID, we were seeing about 150,000 visitors a year to the light yeah. station. Of those, 50% were overseas travellers, and then 30% were uh, interstate Australians, and the remaining were Victorians. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but Australia imposed very quickly um, very strict international border controls in the fact that mm -hmm. there's, there's very, very little um, international movement. And each individual state within Australia impose its own particular state restrictions to prevent spread of, of COVID, which meant that in terms of the tourist industry, um, hospitality industry in Australia, and particularly Victoria, um, that meant that we couldn't operate. It got to a stage where um, the local family uh, said to parts Victoria, the state government body, we can no longer run it as it is. We need support. And it got to a stage whereby Parks Victoria would have to take over the running of the light station. The current situation is that the, the current families will keep it going until June 2022 to the end of the natural lease, and then it will revert back to, to state management. That's where we are at the moment. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, for the first time ever, we've had to close today visitors over winter. The accommodation side at the light station is still in place. And you can also book online uh, pre-book tours. So mm -hmm. we're still open. It's, it's just that we're not open to day visitors, unfortunately. Are you optimistic that it will not have to completely close? I'm very optimistic because if you, there's such a, a, a public desire to see uh, light stations and lighthouses remain and be maintained and open to the mm -hmm. public, that I don't think the Victorian public would, would want the light station to close permanently. I think such is its heritage and its significance that it will continue in, in, in one form or another. I think just for the day-to-day -day management might change. So presently, it's only the uh, pre-booked tours that are happening. Can people see the lighthouse? Is it possible to, to go there and see the lighthouse without booking a tour? You can. We also have what we call the Great Ocean Walk in the region as well, which is a, a three, four day walking tour 
you can do from um, Apollo Bay to the Twelve Apostles, which is a natural attraction further along the Great Ocean Road. And part of that walk will take you past the light station. So you, you will get to see it. You just won't be able to enter the light station precinct it's what it itself and go inside yeah. the lighthouse as you would do on a, a normal tour. So if you're not doing one of those tours, it actually requires a long hike. Is that, do I have that right? Not necessarily. If, if, you, if you park at the light station car park, it's okay. only about a 400 meter walk to get to a vantage point and you can see the lighthouse itself. Oh, okay. Is that a secret? Yeah, that's, that's, that's for public consumption. It's an open secret. Okay. It, it's, All right. It's well signposted that you can do that. All right. So you've mentioned uh, that there are overnight accommodations there. What type of accommodations are available? And you said they are currently open? The accommodation uh, is available. It would depend on um, the Victorian government state restrictions on, of movement of persons as to whether any accommodation within Victoria could be open. Um, but in, in general terms, yes, we're open. Um, there's a variety of accommodation you can have. You can stay in the, the headkeeper's quarters from 1857, for example. Um, you, can, you can stay in what we call the studio, which in effect was the old relief keeper's quarters, but thoroughly refurbished and, and both have you know, tremendous views of the tower of the lighthouse and out to the, to the Southern Ocean, the Bass Strait. We also have accommodation in what we call the lodge and the lodge will take what about 13 people all told, whereas the head keepers accommodation would take maybe about, probably about eight, I would say hmm. off the top of my head, depending on how you configured beds within the, within the building. That's pretty substantial. I think in total, we can, we can certainly accommodate on the light station, probably about close to 20 people. And I assume there's good information online about that. Can people book online as well? Yeah, they can book online. If they go to lightstation.com, all the information about accommodation, about tours, um, history of the light station is on that um, website Yeah, with contact links as well lightstation.com i noticed that and uh, i have to think that somebody grabbed that domain name really early on when before not many lighthouses had grabbed uh, domains that's pretty good lightstation.com like it's the light station which it is of course they call it most significant lighthouse in australia well i easily would think that seems correct to me there was also there is uh, or was a cafe on the site i've i've read What's the status of that? Will that, do you think that'll reopen? I think it will reopen. It, it, it's obviously currently closed uh, for winter, mm-hmm. but, but certainly we're, we're into spring now. Um, it's getting warmer here. Um, people are getting vaccinated as well. So I think we'll be reopening certainly by, by November, I would say. The, the, the federal government are talking about um, international travel resuming in early 2022. So you're getting into spring there. Of course, we're getting into to fall, autumn here. You're in the upside down world to me, <laughs> vice versa. The world turned uh, upside down, yes. Let me ask you, uh, obviously, us Americans, when we think of Australia, one of, among the first things we think of is the, the crazy wildlife you have there, <laughs> at least exotic <laughs> as far as we're concerned. Actually, it's, it's uh, pretty unlike uh, anywhere else in a lot of ways. But what kind of wildlife do you get around there on Cape Otway? It is that crazy wildlife. You're quite right. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, we we have kangaroos, we have wallabies, which is a small version of a kangaroo for the layperson. Right. We have koalas. More than once, we've had a koala walking up the tower at the tower steps, <laughs> the lighthouse. That's great. And let me tell you, they're they're quite a job to get out of the tower. They they don't want to move. In fact. About four months ago, I was opening up the telegraph station in the morning and I heard the noise inside and I thought, we got burglars. And it turned out to be a koala. A ko- someone left a window open and the, the koala spent the night there and they, they'd overturned the washstand and, and broken the jug and basin. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and huh. that took a lot of effort to get it out as well. So, yep, we have koalas, we have snakes. 
Australia is renowned for its dangerous animals as well and reptiles. We, we, ha- we do have poison snakes. We, we have um, tiger snakes and brown snakes. We tend to know where they are. We do advise um, visitors not to go near them. Have you had snakes get into the tower? Not yet. <laughs> not okay. yet. Cross your fingers. Why would a koala go into the tower anyway? I've got no <laughs> idea. I, I, it would it'd be hard to mistake a, a tower for a tree, but there you go. Curiosity. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, because there's, there's no eucalyptus in the tower, right? That's pretty okay. much all they eat, isn't it? When you drive to Cape Botway, when you go along Lighthouse Road, you'll, you'll see a lot of dead trees, and they are all eucalyptus. I imagine there's also interesting birds around there. Yep, we have uh, wedge-tailed eagles, which are great when you see them soaring overhead over the light station. Mm-hmm. We, we have other raptors, we have seabirds, we have songbirds, everything you can think of. If you love nature, if you love history, the light station is a great place to work or visit. Sure sounds like it. I have one more question for you, Alex. This is for bonus points. Uh, What have you enjoyed most about your association with Cape Otway and Cape Otway Lighthouse? There's so many things you could say. One is the opportunity to educate the public about the importance of lighthouses and the importance of, of the families who served the lighthouse. As we discussed before, it's not just a simple structure. There's so much more to it uh, in terms of safety navigation, the importance of the state and the the economic development of the country and the social history. You've got all that. And the opportunity to educate people about that is great. I think the opportunity for me to conduct research into these lives is a tremendous privilege as well. Probably the most thing I, I, I really enjoy and it, it probably sounds terrible to say it, is I love once the visitors go. <laughs> At the end of the day, going out onto the balcony of the lantern room, and you, you gaze over the light station, and you think about that past. You do have that connection with the past. And then you look the other way, you look to the ocean side, and whatever the weather, it is a great view out there. Sometimes I say, the wetter the windier, the better. And it does always help during whale season where you've got whales breaching off the lights off the tower as well. Yeah, it, it's all those things. But for, I think for me, it is that gazing out to the light station and, and getting that connection to the past. Yeah, there's those special moments when you get to kind of soak it all in when uh, maybe there's nobody else around. Those are pretty special, so I can understand. And uh, you have a special place there. But it is such a pleasure talking with you, Alex, today. It really is. You're, you're a great ambassador for that place, and uh, I can see how much you love it. And you have so much knowledge, and you just mentioned how you love the research. I can tell you've done, done a lot. Uh, are you going to write a book on Cape Otway Lighthouse? It's funny you should say that. <laughs> um, there, there's a book already written back in the early 1990s called Beacons of Hope. Yes, which... I have it. Yeah, You, you have it? Okay, so it's it's the early history of Cape Otway and also um, Cape Wickham on King Island. The mm-hmm. author of that is a person called Donald Walker, who still lives locally. Donald and I have a, a great relationship, and recently Donald and I decided that we would, in effect, rewrite Beacons of Hope and explore what happened in the 20th century as well and bring that whole history together. So there is a book in mind, so watch this space. Yeah, this is breaking news, I think. I got, got a scoop. I got a scoop. Wow. Well, that's exciting. I'll be looking forward to it. I want to get an autographed copy. Uh, Alex, again, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I, I really appreciate it. I hope we'll be talking again. I think we will be in the future. It's been a pleasure, and I hope to see you all in 2022. You can learn more about Cape Otway Lighthouse at lightstation.com. I really enjoyed speaking with Alex Perry. Uh, he doesn't like to call himself a lighthouse keeper, and uh, maybe he's not a keeper in the traditional sense, but he's definitely the keeper of Cape Otway Lighthouse in terms of preserving the light station and its history. Many thanks to all the members, volunteers, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society at the headquarters at the Point No Point Light Station in Washington and all around the world. Go to uslhs.org to learn more about memberships, the passport program, tours, and all the other things the Society offers. 
Thank you so much for co-hosting today, Sarah. It's great to have you on board. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. We'll have to do it again. As always, everyone, thank you for listening and keep a good light. Oh